Chapter 7 of The Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 7 The Street and the Drawing Room. The key of the great mysteries lies hidden in all things around us, but the perplexities of the convention hinder us from finding it. A. E. Waite, A Book of Mystery and Vision. Because she had made a little place for the watcher, had accepted his presence, even took a certain pride in her guardianship, Constance now found herself subjected to a steady invasion, as one after another the chambers of her mind opened their doors to him. His vision was merged with hers, in all save immediately human matters. Thus she was finally made aware of a new aspect of the universe, of an angle from which she might perceive the splendor, aliveness, and mysterious qualities of natural things, the inconceivable lunacy of most man-arranged things. This happened to her with a rush upon the Saturday afternoon on which she went to tea with Mrs. Vince. She had set out with eagerness, a little excited, as always when adventure or new experience was on hand, and therefore perhaps the more ready to open her eyes on strange truth. It was early in May, and there were moments of a shy and exquisite sunshine between the passing of the fluffy clouds. Constance, alighting from her omnibus, came down a steep and tree-planted street with her face to the south. She was in a superior residential neighborhood, and the houses upon either hand were built of red brick and had many large, clean windows, all opened at the top and furnished with casement curtains of soft silk. Expensive tulips of discordant tints grew in the little gardens. There were fantastic knockers on many of the doors. It was in this unexpected district that she saw the shining tree. It sprang upon her consciousness out of the patchy, sunny world of paving stones, window boxes, and pale blue sky, complete, alive, a radiant personality whose real roots she was sure penetrated far beyond the limitations of this material world. She gazed, astonished, into the heart of it, saw the travail and stress of the spirit of life crying out for expression, the mysterious sap rushing through its arteries, the ceaseless and ritual dance of every speck of substance which built it, that eternal setting to partners which constitutes the rhythm of the world. She perceived the long and eager fingers fringed with tentacles too delicate for sight, which clawed their way far into the earth, their fervid and restless search for food to nourish the arrogant and tufted tail which they sent into the upper air. It was as if, accustomed to glance carelessly at the face of an agreeable and conventionally clothed acquaintance, that acquaintance were now revealed to her in the awful dignity of the nude. As for the tufted tail, it was no elastic and ingenious arrangement of branch and twig, set with buds and young leaves, no convenient perching place for innumerable sparrows. It broke like an imprisoned angel through the concrete prosperities of the street. Its airy filaments enmeshed a light which she had never seen before. In that street it dwelt solitary, apart, yet very near. There was something between them, something in spite of her longing, which kept them separate. She wondered what it could be, 
she saw each leaf fierce and lucent as an emerald radiant of green fire blazing passionate with energy a verdant furnace wherein transcendent life was distilled cast into the mould of material things either as she supposed for a moment it was not there at all or else it had always awaited the perceiving intelligence in virtue of some amazing significance that it had a nook which it filled a truth that it expressed within the universal dream its presence obliterated the clumsy shapes of the ordinary world and their foolish limitations it gave her a vision of another universe of the world through space of countless planets all teeming feathery flowering to the angelic eye with some such radiant inflorescence as this she saw the cosmos as god's flower garden in which he strode well content in the cool of the day and man as the little scuttling insect breeding and feeding amongst the leaves she saw it thus for an instant the shining glassy pulsating thing then as it seemed another veil was stripped from her eyes and she saw it in its unimaginable reality as it is seen by the spiritual sight remote and more wonderfully luminous the fit object for her adoration the watcher's voice cried within her ah beautiful exquisite world here at last is the meaning the real the idea why did i not understand before as for her she had nothing to say nothing to show she was too astonished and too full of joy he said again ah what amazing happiness you have you little creatures all the shapes and colours and the sharp edges against the light and the lovely little differences of things what a splendid dream what a gloss upon eternity how satisfying but why do you always look at the other side how greatly you are mistaken and how much joy you must miss because of being with unreal and ugly things a woman passed dressed in isabella-coloured rags her coarse hair was gathered in an unseemly knot by the help of a bit of common string her dingy mottled stockings lay in folds about the ankles her boots were unlaced she carried a tiny baby at her breast and a few bunches of shabby violets in a basket the baby was a condensed statement of human unpleasantness the violets in their present condition of purplish pulp still conveyed like kings in exile a poignant suggestion of lost fragrance and shy grace this smudged sketch of womanhood came between constance and the tree unconscious of the thing that was close to her and of the parted veil through which the other woman peeped she was wrapped closely in her own cares and discomforts a ragged vestal virgin to all delights save one so busy tending the difficult flame of life that she never had time to warm herself by its rays the watcher withdrew from his lookout when she came within its field one could feel the strong contractive movement of loathing which her image had evoked he said why do you let your earth breed such horrible things stamp them out feed the beautiful and starve the vile constance answered i don't think 
one can, because it is all one. The watcher replied, No, no, how foolish, how blind you are. Here is the true and lovely dream close beside you. Look at it. Live in it. This is the true projection of the will. But the ugly side of vision is all false. Leave that alone. Let it die. The woman came nearer and said, Violets, lady, do buy some violets. I ain't taken nothing today. The hopeless effort of the myriad feeble poor, all the teeming alleys, the indistinguishable hordes, seemed to come as a wailing chorus to her words. Somewhere in Constance's mind an inhabitant arose who knew that music, who wrestled with the watcher for possession of her will, saying, Cling to the human, however loathsome. Do not refuse life in all her implications. But the shining tree was there, as it seemed, with the other message crying, Open your eyes to the light, to a world made luminous. Leave the shadows. Come, come. The watcher applauded those words. There she was, between two worlds of experience, between the two great expressions of the spirit of life, the shining tree in its transcendental splendor and security, and the shifting, agonized, and pullulating deeps. Beauty called her through the parted veil of perception, casting open door after door upon the countless aspects of creation. But pain, friendly, ugly, human pain, was at her elbow, whispering that this was a birthright which she would only renounce at her cost. The unsavory baby stirred under its shawl at this moment and thrust out a tightly clenched and grimy fist. Then Constance saw for an instant life, the ever-lovely, fertile, heedless, generous life, springing beneath the rags, fresh and exquisite as the nascent corn beneath the mold. Its champion within her acknowledged this presence, recognizing it as identical with that vision by which it had always been guided and upheld, and unconscious of its maimed, degraded face, the child and his mother became a symbol, and love was in the air, very humble and glad, saying, Vita dolcedo et spes nostra salve. The woman had grown to the likeness of the shining tree. She too was radiant, eternal, and sublime. The spirit of life ran like a divine fire in her veins and was given to the infant at her breast. She had become a majestic link in the process of creation, an auxiliary of the angels. A fresh door was thrown open upon reality, whereby it was seen that even the prisoners in the dungeon still wore the insignia of kings. The tree was there, throwing, as it were, the shelter of a transcendental loveliness, and knowledge about the poor efforts of those entangled in the flesh. The woman and child, seen against it, were an image of all life. It seemed an anticlimax to give the woman sixpence to look with interest at the baby's moist and smutty face, but she did it in this act that deep-seated personality within her became dominant. The baffled and disgusted watcher loosed the reins, Acknowledging beauty, she had vindicated her humanity by paying her deepest reverence to life, a proceeding which can only seem insane to those spiritual natures which have not been passed through the furnace of love. 
she came to Mrs. Vince's drawing-room, hardly prepared by the curtain-raiser for a full appreciation of that comedy which was the main business of her afternoon. Andrew met her with surprise, for his wife had forgotten to tell him of the invitation. He looked thicker than ever in his own home, and so out of place that Constance found it difficult to remember that he was her host. His civilities were automatic, he had said. Very good of you to come to us, before he realized that the goodness for once was actually on Muriel's side. She was going to be kind to Miss Tyrell. This, he felt, would be a delicate matter, but he was obliged to acknowledge her conduct as perfect. It must clearly be a point of honor with all three of them to forget the bookshop, and Vince saw it with a painful distinctness when his friend was announced. Therefore, the curious sincerity of Muriel's welcome amazed him. There were interesting people in the room, but she turned from them all to attend on her new guest, she said. I've been looking forward so much to this. In fact, we all have. I know you're wonderful. Oh, yes, I saw it the moment that I met you. My little boy felt it, too. And you know how sensitive children are. They are near the source and have not had time to forget. But you shan't be teased to tell people things, I promise. They are all longing to meet you, and if you would rather, they will have to be content with just that. She smiled at Constance with an air of secret intimacy, shutting her in the little circle of her own comprehension. The effect was dazzling, for Muriel was looking unusually pretty. Her hair was arranged with a laborious and becoming simplicity, her large eyes shone with spiritual enthusiasm. If gaiety could rightly be attributed to the really high-minded, she was almost gay upon this afternoon and Andrew, watching her, was amazed that such exultation could be produced by lectures, exclusive ideals, and a vegetarian diet. The woolen underclothing which he knew that she affected would have kept any ordinary woman from attaining that air of esoteric smartness which constituted Muriel's peculiar charm. Constance drifted away, leaving her hostess at liberty. Miss Foster at once took her place and said softly, who is the big, dark-haired woman in impossible brown kid gloves? She is going to be interesting, answered Muriel. At least, I hope so. But they are very tiresome sometimes. Occult things, magic, and so on. Talk to her, there's a dear, and presently I'll get Mrs. Reed to draw her out. It is her first visit. I've just been putting her at her ease. Oddly enough, it was Andrew who discovered her, and, as a matter of fact, she keeps a shop. Being in a shop nowadays is so very different, said Phoebe. Yes, but still even now a shop isn't quite. It is books, you see. Rather a new idea, isn't it? And rather a pity, I think. Of course, if it were hats or old furniture, anyone would receive her. I expect she is a lady. She certainly moves like one, said another guest who had been listening to the conversation. "'Yes, I noticed that at once,' replied Muriel. Then, recollecting herself, she added hastily, "'But at any rate she is a woman, which is, of course, a far greater thing.' "'And rarer,' observed Andrew, abruptly. All the ladies in his vicinity looked at him with as much surprise as if an infant in arms had made an intelligible remark. "'I will go and talk to her,' said Phoebe, 
in whom Andrew aroused that instinctive dislike which all women feel for the husbands of their more cultivated friends. Also, she wished to help Muriel with her party, and was aware that if the new acquisition were first drawn out by the wrong person, her value as an asset would be sensibly diminished. She approached Constance, but too late. Miss Tyrell had already been captured. A comfortable lady in very worldly clothes sat by her on the sofa, and Phoebe, recognizing in Mrs. Weatherby that hateful form of stupidity which is apt to make one's own cleverness seem absurd, shortened sail and remained at a little distance in an attitude of watchful detachment. "'I don't think,' said Mrs. Weatherby, without further preliminary, "'that I have seen you at one of Mrs. Vince's parties before.' "'No,' said Constance. "'You are wise to come. I always do. It amuses me. She doesn't want me, but there are some people, you know, that even these clever young women are obliged to ask. You see, I've known Andrew ever since he was in petticoats. Very unsuitable he looked then. Such a little man. Muriel dislikes me because I haven't got a soul. But as I live next door, she has never been able to drop me.' tiresome for her, isn't it? She chuckled, stuffed a soft mauve pillow into the space between her shoulders and the sofa, and continued talking in that mood of unbridled confidence about other people's business which the company of an entire stranger will sometimes provoke. Muriel, she said, is a pretty girl, isn't she? Piquant, unusual, even artistic clothes never looked dowdy on her. One isn't surprised that Andrew fell in love, although the little wretch hadn't a penny. I admire Mrs. Vince immensely, replied Constance. Too much like a Madonna in a drawing-room to please me, said Mrs. Weatherby. Give her a halo, a blue tea-gown, and a baby. But she never had another after Felix, lazy creature. As for poor Andrew, he is just in the position of a Saint Joseph in these nice little pictures you get at high church shops. I can't think how they do them, only eighteen pence in real oak frames. Well, that's what he makes me think of, standing up behind in a very uncomfortable position whilst Muriel is admired. A good, honest fellow with sound business instincts and his living to get at his trade, shut up with a painfully unique and exquisite wife everyone else in their knees before her, and he feeling that attitude rather fatiguing after a hard day's work. How coarse and ugly all the ordinary, little comfortable bad habits must appear in such company. Could you drink bottled stout with that sitting at the other end of the table? Would it be possible to snore in the presence of a really spiritual woman? That is Andrew's condition, all over, Muriel enjoys her own virtues thoroughly, but his don't agree with the furniture, and so they have to be kept out of sight. Constance, who was too much interested in Muriel's hair to care very much about her virtues, was bewildered by this brutal frankness and had nothing to say. There was a short silence, and Miss Foster, seeing her opportunity, pounced. "'I want you,' she said, "'to talk to me a little, if you will,' We haven't been introduced, but I feel that we know one another. Mrs. Vince told me one or two things. 
You must not mind. I am sure that we shall be sympathetic. I, too, have a great belief in the undeveloped faculties of man, Constance replied. I am afraid that Mrs. Vince is mistaken. I am a very ordinary person, and as to the subjects which interest her, I know hardly anything beyond, perhaps, the immensity of my own ignorance. Intuition, said Phoebe, is greater than knowledge, and especially a woman's intuition unhindered by the love of carnal things. Constance could see Andrew in the middle distance, moving to and fro with the awkward and desperate motions of a man resisting to the utmost his natural instinct for flight. He was so humbly human, so desperately real, that she almost expected house and tea-party to dissolve and leave him incurably actual, poised in space. Muriel had retreated to the window, whence her gentle and earnest voice could be heard now and then. She was conversing with two clean-shaven and frock-coated youths, whose presence was obviously a tribute to the appearances rather than to the opinions of the assembled ladies. One of them kept a perpetual but unostentatious watch upon the movements of Miss Foster. The other looked at his hostess whilst he listened to a heavy, sallow woman with greasy black hair, prominent eyes, and many Egyptian ornaments. The sallow woman, whose name was Mrs. Reed, was speaking in a voice of extraordinary power and sweetness. Salt, sulfur, and mercury, she said, are really, in their ultimate implications, the three Maries at the sepulchre of soul. When we have learned this, we are at the threshold of the grand arcanum, for complicity of myth merges in unity of experience, if we could but understand. What is the arcanum? asked the youth who was watching Miss Foster. The sallow lady looked at him severely. Osiris, she said, died a sacrifice, and of Osiris Horus was reborn. Alchemical gold is the fruit of destroying fire. Does this tell you nothing? The questioner was abashed, and his companion muttered, Poor old Freddy, in an almost audible tone. Muriel broke in. We must not, she observed, attribute too much finality, even to pre-Christian myths, I think. Can they, after all, be more than methods of training the subconscious mind to an apprehension of truth? No, said Freddy, moving away with a dexterity which was clearly the result of long practice. It was at this point that the watcher, surging up to the encounter of this inner nest of illusion and the new existences that it contained, exclaimed in her mind, It is all unreal, confused and hopeless. Ah, why will they pervert and spoil this dream? She was off her guard. He was strong, and the words were audible. She heard her lips say them. They sounded strange and uncivil, and she wondered what would happen next. Fortunately, Phoebe understood them to be a reply to her last observation. She said approvingly, That is so true. Knowledge without insight leads us from the light instead of to it. I see that you are a mystic. All young people like to call themselves mystics nowadays, interrupted Mrs. Weatherby with a knowing air of kindly contempt. I often wonder whether they know what they mean by it. Surely, said Phoebe gently, a mystic is one who lives in reality instead of in appearance. 
Constance heard her own voice saying, Then there can be no mystics on the earth. Oh, I cannot agree with you there, replied Phoebe. Indeed, we know to the contrary, for the great mystics have left their records behind. Did we not know that ecstasy and meditation can shift the threshold of consciousness and open the soul's eyes upon the unseen, we should be miserable indeed. Constance, still at the mercy of her lodger, and possessed by that curious exultation and freedom from self-consciousness which society sometimes induces in those who live much alone, said, That is but one illusion the more. Just so, agreed Mrs. Weatherby, a mystic's experience is only valid for himself. All the books say so. He may not be mad, of course, but you can't prove it. Besides, these subjects make people cold and unsociable. In a married woman, they generally mean a husband who is either unsatisfied or unsatisfactory. Probably both in the end. The fact is, they aren't quite normal, and that is why nice women have always felt that they are not right. Muriel had joined them. A nice woman, dear Mrs. Weatherby, she said, is unfortunately so often called nice because she has not sufficient character to suggest any other adjective. She always has womanliness, replied Mrs. Weatherby. Oh, yes, I know, it's an old-fashioned word, and what's more, I don't care if it is. You may depend upon it, my dear, that the really womanly woman is the grandest figure in the world, and when you young people have got through with your mysticism, the men will make you come back to it. She is sublime as a mother, and often unacceptably clever in making love, observed Phoebe dispassionately. If you mean by womanly, the deep-bosomed, quiescent creature with steady nerves. For the rest, she is afraid of life, like priests and other people who are born to the perfect performance of a restricted job. Constance took fire at that. But she is life, she said. She has it. You who watch and classify, do you think that you live? You are only the wallflowers at the ball. You haven't joined the dance. You haven't earned your supper. I wonder whether you'll get it in the end. Phoebe looked at her in some surprise and then answered very placidly, You do not take into account the interior life of the soul or the spiritual children that it bears. No, you forget them observed the youth called Freddy, who had been waiting for an opportunity of agreeing with Miss Foster's remarks. Yes, said Muriel, that is the real existence, the higher consciousness, is it not? And it is all here, she tapped her chest mysteriously as she spoke. Of course, in the solar plexus, exclaimed another lady, a pretty, fluffy person, quaintly dressed in the early Victorian style. What a wonderful discovery, is it not? Once it has awakened, they say that even the most dyspeptic people may eat anything without endangering their inner peace. And pray, how does one awake it? asked Mrs. Weatherby. Phoebe replied, by the practice of meditation. Yes, of course, said the fluffy lady, rather plaintively. Meditation is the beginning of everything, is it not? at least in spiritual things, and now they say it leads to success in business as well, which would be so very delightful, through the will force, you know, and concentration. 
but it isn't as easy as it sounds, not by any means. The other day I shut myself up in my bedroom and tried hard to meditate on the mystic rose. They recommend that, you know, in some of the books, and it, it is a very sweet idea, but I must say it did not seem particularly helpful. Nothing happened, and after a little time I went to sleep. You should ask Miss Tyrell to advise you, said Muriel, anxious to show the positive aspects of her new acquisition. She is a student of the old occultists. You know they practiced all these things under different names in the Middle Ages, for magic has a great deal to do with the psychology of the subconscious mind. Constance looked at the fluffy lady, aware that in the eyes of the angels the faint and delightful tints of her complexion were more of importance than many higher thoughts. She also noticed that Mrs. Reed had drawn near and formed part of a little circle that seemed to wait upon her words, she said. But I don't quite know why you should want to do these things. When you have done them, life will never be the same again to you. All its proportions will have altered, and you may not like it so well. You have so many worlds of your own that you can hardly miss the real world, which is the one that you have not got. When you have got it, all the others must go, and it is so simple that I think at first you might be rather bored. As for me, I had very little that was worth having in my world, and so I was tempted to explore. But you, she looked at them, at the eager circle of small-souled egotists, at Muriel, who said appealingly, Isn't she wonderful? And at the other women, who agreed without enthusiasm. She saw the little struggling scraps of life within these curious and fragile envelopes, tiny flames disguised and differentiated by the variety of their enclosing lamps. They all, as it seemed, took the lamps very seriously, forgetting that these were matters of artifice built up from the atmospheric gases and the substance of the earth, and that their inhabitants were alike sparks from the same central fire. But Constance was not allowed to forget it. That hawk-eyed lodger of hers pierced through the pretense and saw the poor bewildered flame struggling for air within its elaborate prison. The odd thing was that the crowd of little souls, some nearly smothered by the cobwebs that they had gathered round themselves, took no interest in each other, but only in each other's lamps. The polite life of the drawing-room was just that, the myriad inextinguishable flames disdaining their own immortal heat and radiance, feeding hungrily upon the illusions which caused them to mistake colored glass for divine flame. Constance finished her sentence. You can live your life, your dream life, if you choose, in all its richness, down to the bottom and up to the heights. That is very close to reality and the only satisfying thing, I am afraid. If you explore, all that you will learn will be the necessity of getting back there, if you can. How interesting, said Muriel in a slightly disappointed tone. The fluffy lady looked displeased and bewildered. Her pretty mouth was drawn into the beginning of a pout. But presently her face cleared, and she said triumphantly, I think I know what you must mean, exactly. A friend of mine had a baby through Christian science last year, so you see, it does all fit in. Everything fits in, observed Mrs. Reed solemnly, 
for the many are comprehended in the one. When Miss Tyra left, Andrew followed her into the hall, found her umbrella, and with more than his usual obtuseness asked whether she wanted a cab. I was wondering, don't you know, he said slowly. His mind rambled to the bookshop and back again to his own home. He wished to realize Constance in both situations and found the idea difficult to deal with. Finally, he said, we must keep this up, eh? Capital plan, so good for Muriel. Change of society. These women, don't you know, are all alike. Constance answered, they all seem very different to me. Quite a new world. That's it. They're a little lot all to themselves. Don't seem to catch on to ordinary life somehow. It's been made too soft for them, I fancy. And they're mostly clever. Not that one minds clever women, but they ought to be given a toughish time. They're like boys. They need it. She smiled. Don't give Mrs. Vince a hard time. She's delicious. He seemed pleased. She has nice coloring, he said. I thought you would admire her, but these women never think of that. They come here because she lets them talk. Waste of a pretty girl, isn't it, to give her up to that sort of thing? Constance, who had been pursued all the afternoon by a longing to enjoy Muriel in peace without the disturbing follies of persons who were not pretty, agreed cordially. He would have continued the conversation, but Mrs. Reed appeared at the foot of the staircase. Andrew shook hands hastily and said, Mind you, look us up again, and retreated. Mrs. Reed came to the door and allowed the parlor-maid to cover her dress with a shabby alpaca dust-coat. She looked almost ordinary once her scarabs were concealed. Oblivious of this abrupt relapse into undistinguished dowdiness, she fixed her large and solemn eyes on Miss Tyrell's face and said, Shall we go a little way together? When the door was safely closed upon them, she continued, I have been wishing to talk with you all the afternoon. I think this is your first visit, is it not? A delightful house, quite a refuge for those who long for a more spiritual environment than that provided by modern civilization. Mr. Vince, of course, is very male, but one doesn't mind that. But today people were not as receptive as usual. You, for instance, were not understood. I see so well what you were trying to express to them. These foolish young women know nothing of the vast and secret forces with which they play. That's it, said Constance eagerly. But you and I, who know, whom neither the flux of time nor the wreck of dogma can disturb, we can safely accept the extended life that is offered to those who have seen the metaphysical lover face to face. She turned down a narrow lane beneath the high wall of a church, stopped at a vivid red brick portico named 230 to 315, and added, Here is my little Irie. Will you not come in for a moment? I feel sure that we have much in common. The long climb up cemented and uncarpeted stairs past distempered corridors, speckled with innumerable front doors that seemed to have strayed out of doll's house land to relieve the hygienic severity of germ-proof walls and fireproof flooring, concentrated the attention of both ladies on material things. They clutched the fronts of their skirts, husbanded their breath, 
and spoke little until Mrs. Reed inserted her latch-key in a Yale lock on the top floor. Then Constance said politely, How nice and airy you must be up here! And the watcher within muttered, You certainly make the dream as inconvenient as you can. It was with an almost conventional courtesy that Mrs. Reed now led her visitor into the single sitting-room of that little flat. Constance was not surprised to find whitewashed, rush carpet, a small cast of Isis nursing at the infant Horace, and a complete absence of tablecloths and other textile amenities. But she was slightly astonished when she perceived a very old and red-faced gentleman dozing by the small fire. A large blue Persian cat was folded into a compact parcel on his knee. The completeness of Mrs. Reed's personality, the authoritative position which she had seemed to occupy in Muriel's circle, had suggested a detachment from the more ordinary human relations. It seemed hardly credible that the metaphysical lover could suffer a domestic rivalry. Yet Mrs. Reed now approached the old gentleman, looked at him with profound interest and tenderness, and said, Dear, have you had a good afternoon? Eh, what? You back, my love? said the old man. Been gallivanting with your young friends, eh? Had a pleasant party? That's right. I'd like you to enjoy yourself. Ra and I had a quiet hour together. Very comfortable. In fact, I fancy we have both had forty winks. You must have your milk now, replied Mrs. Reed, and you will have to entertain Miss Tyrell whilst I get it. She said to Constance in a lower tone, Will you talk to my husband a little? It would be kind. He's rather deaf, but it will be all right if you articulate distinctly. My wife, said Mr. Reed to Constance when they were alone, is a dear good girl, very intelligent, as I dare say, you know. I'm proud of her. I like to see her friends come here. It shows that she is appreciated. It is very providential that she should have these interests, for we never had any family, and that's a sad misfortune for any woman. As I sometimes say, I have to be father, husband, and baby all in one. He chuckled with immense and senile enjoyment of this well-digested pleasantry. Mrs. Reed returned with hot milk in a feeding cup, helped him to take it, and said, That's a good old dear, as the last drop was neatly disposed of. My little Nell makes me quite lazy, murmured Mr. Reed, when the meal was over and his mouth had been wiped. His big head settled down again upon the shoulders, the loose baggy cheeks almost touching the lapels of his velveteen coat. His lips fell apart, and one saw that a few dark yellow stumps still remained in the sunken gums. His eyelids closed. A very comforting drop of milk. Very comforting indeed, he said sleepily. Then the watcher cried suddenly and silently in his nest, Vile, vile, why feed the foul and useless body when it is beginning to decay? Let it go, let it die. Nourish the beautiful things. Constance in horror exclaimed, No, no, he said, why not? This bit of the dream is finished and done with. Why clutch it? Where is its value? Let it pass away and join the real. Oddly enough, the only reply which came to her mind was the word which Helen Reed had spoken. The many are comprehended in the one. 
it seemed inappropriate as well as absurd for it suggested a vital connection between ineffable beauty and the old man who was huddled by the fire nevertheless she said it End of chapter 7